dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, back with a new episode. Uh, Just a reminder that we are bi-weekly now, so we'll be here every other Thursday. So we'll begin, as usual, with a great big headline rundown with all kinds of news about ballet company promotions and Emmy nominations and Broadway casting controversies, ton to get into this week. Then we will do a longer section discussing the specter of long COVID from a dance perspective and what this phase of the pandemic, which is very much not over yet, however, over it, everybody is, what this phase reveals about the vulnerability of our bodies and the problems with the ways that we think about chronic illness and disability. Um, By the way, before we get started, just a reminder that every week that we don't have a new Dance Edit podcast episode, we do have a new Dance Edit Extra episode out on Apple Podcasts. The Dance Edit Extra is, of course, our exclusive audio interview series. We have some fantastic guests coming up, so please do go check it out. You can find it every other Saturday on Apple Podcasts. You can search for the Dance Edit Extra there, or you can follow the direct link in our show notes. Okay, so headlines first, starting with the theater Twitter controversy of at least the season, if not the decade. Yes, what a controversy this has been. So Leah Michelle and Tova Feldsha are joining the cast of Funny Girl on Broadway. Michelle will take over the starring role of Fanny Bryce from Beanie Feldstein, who is leaving the production early on July 31st. Feldsha will replace Jane Lynch as Mrs. Bryce, Fanny's mother. Feldstein and Lynch were originally slated to remain on board until the end of this year, but the departure was at one point moved to September 25th for both. Um, Michelle has been famously forthcoming about wanting to pursue this role for years, and playing in Funny Girl was a large part of her character Rachel Berry's storyline on the hit TV show Glee. So, a lot, a lot of layers to this. So many layers. And, uh, I mean, the official Funny Girl Twitter account said about 24 hours before the announcement came out that it would be making a casting announcement, and I simply could not be on theater Twitter in that interim period, or or for the hours immediately after the casting was announced. Frankly, it was just an utterly bonkers place. I mean, the Glee memes alone, my goodness. It was intense. It was very intense. I think yeah. everyone pretty much saw this coming, and it was still, boy, <laughs> it, was, it was definitely an experience. Oh, gosh. I, I think it's also very much worth noting that For the one-month period between Beanie's departure and Leah's arrival, Julie Benko, the understudy who has been going on as Fanny pretty frequently, actually, will be doing the role. Um, And she'll also continue to perform it every Thursday night after Leah joins the show. And a lot of people have said just awesome things about Julie's portrayal. So hooray for talented understudies getting their due, or at least a bit of their due. We love to see it. Yeah. Okay, here is yet more significant Broadway news. Paradise Square, which was nominated for 10 Tonys, including Best Choreography, will close this Sunday following persistently soft ticket sales. And right after that news broke, we also learned that both Actors' Equity and the union representing theatrical designers are taking Paradise Square to court for unpaid wages and benefit contributions. So a turbulent week for this show. And we have links with more information about that in the show notes. But the bright note about that that I want to point out is Joaquina Kalukongo's uh, great performance that she gave at the Tony Awards. It was just so powerful and moving. Mm-hmm. Thanks for bringing it back to a positive place. <laughs> 
and Juliet is set to make its Broadway debut this fall. The production is a reimagining of Romeo and Juliet in which Juliet does not meet a tragic end. Instead, she gets another chance at life and love. Previews will begin October 28th at the Stephen Sondheim Theater before the show opens on November 17th. Very excited to see Jennifer Weber's choreography in particular, since it was nominated for an Olivier Award on the West End. Um, And Weber is also the choreographer for K-pop the musical, so we'll be seeing a lot of her work on Broadway very soon. Applause, applause, applause. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving to the ballet world now, a group of Ukrainian ballet dancers displaced by Russia's invasion are coming together to form the United Ukrainian Ballet. They've been rehearsing in The Hague with the support of the Dutch government, and in September, they're coming to London to perform a special Ukrainian-inflected version of Giselle, developed by Alexei Ratmansky. The season will feature guest performances from the star Romanian ballerina Alina Kozhukaru, who trained in Kyiv, and also from English National Ballet's Ukrainian first soloist Katya Kanyukova. And all ticket sell profits will go to the DEC Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal and the United Ukrainian Ballet Foundation. Promotions galore are happening in the ballet world. At American Ballet Theater, Catherine Herlin and Roman Gerben have been promoted to principal dancer, and current guest artist Daniel Camargo is joining the company full-time as a principal. Brianne Granlund, Sung Woo Han, Betsy McBride, Chloe Misseldine, and Sunmi Park have been promoted to soloist. At the Royal Ballet, some promotions include William Bracewell and Reese Clark, who have both become principal dancers, and Joseph Sissons, who becomes a first soloist. Also a notable promotion at La Scala is Alice Mariani's ascension to principal, and at the National Ballet of Canada, Genevieve Penn-Navity has been promoted to principal. Congrats all around. Oh, so many well-deserved promotions on that list. I have to say, just because we're, we're just now seeing ABT's season at the Met, so it's fresh in my mind. Oh my gosh, Kate Herlin and Chloe Misseldine in particular mm-hmm. have just been riveting. Just magical. And I'm glad to see Daniel Camargo coming in full-time too. I really like his sort of quietly poetic approach to story ballets. Although it is going to take me a minute to disconnect him from the truly terrible character that he played on Birds of Paradise. Mm. <laughs> Just like need a second to recalibrate that. Yes, but definitely a, a group of outstanding dancers. You just can't take your eyes off any of them. So it's really exciting. Thank you again for bringing it back around to the positive. (laughs) Here is some big dance team news that was actually sort of buried in a recent audition announcement. The Nick City dancers have brought in commercial dance legend Fatima Robinson as their new creative director. So according to the casting notice, Robinson will construct, quote, a totally reimagined version of what it means to dance center court at Madison Square Garden, end quote, and quote, usher in a new era, end quote, for the dance team. This sounds so fantastic. And it's kind of in line with what we've seen, like the Brooklynettes and a couple of other teams do a few years ago when they started bringing in commercial world choreographers. Um, but Fatima is not just choreographer, but also creative director. Yes, please. More. I'm so excited to see what she does. I just think this is going to be incredible. On a, a much sadder note, um, a 33-year-old dance teacher from San Antonio, Texas, uh, drowned over the July 4th weekend. Roger Mendoza was part of a swimming race with some of his friends at a lake in Austin, uh, but his friends reported that he did not surface. His body was found on July 6th. Uh, One of his friends said, quote, Roger loved with all his heart. And here's another upsetting headline. An Ohio dance teacher has been accused of repeatedly raping a student younger than 13. 19-year-old Caitlin Wilkies has been charged with 12 counts of rape and two counts of gross sexual imposition. 
We have a link to that report in the show notes, but of course, please proceed with caution. This year's Choreography Emmy Award nominations are in. For Outstanding Choreography for Variety or Reality Programming, we have Sergio Trujillo, Daniela Karagach, Fatima Robinson, Paris Goebel, and Tassandra Chavez and Derek Huff. For Scripted Programming, the nominees are Ryan Heffington, Fred Talixen, Christian Vincent, Christopher Gatelli, and Mandy Moore, and Jillian Myers. Once again, congratulations to a, an outstanding group of artists. Yeah, another stellar list. And the Emmys, one of the only award shows to recognize choreographers. So bravo. That part. Um, a new dance data project study of the largest 150 ballet and classically based companies in the United States reveals the financial impact of the pandemic, and also that a small group of large organizations still receive the lion's share of funding. So the aggregate expenses for the largest 50 companies on the list dropped by about 12% from the previous year. And then if you look at the budgets for the next 50 companies down after that, their total budget is only 8% of the top 50's total. And if you look at the bottom 50 companies, their total is just 2.5% of the top 50's total expenses. So everybody has less than before, but most of the pie is still going to a few large organizations. And we have the link to the whole report in the show notes because there is a ton of really useful information in there, as always with DDP. South Arts and the Ford Foundation have launched the Southern Cultural Treasures Initiative, which is a $6 million program supporting underserved Southern arts organizations. Among the grantees are the Collage Dance Collective and Ethnic. So congratulations all around there, and more congrats are in order here, too. The New York Public Library for the Performing Arts has announced its 2022 to 2023 Dance Research Fellows. They are Julie Brandano, Rosemary Candelario, Maria de los Angeles Rodriguez Jimenez, Lindsay Jones, Richard Move, and Rachna Nivas. During their six-month fellowship, they will be working on projects that help us consider and address climate change. Michoacan, Mexico has beaten the 2019 Guinness record of neighboring state Jalisco for the largest Mexican folk dance. Over 1,000 dancers are estimated to have participated. Pretty cool. And over in TV land, Disney's Beauty and the Beast will be getting the live treatment this December on ABC, the two-hour live action slash animated special. And I'm very curious to see what that slash will actually mean, by the way, will be executive produced by John M. Chu, who we know loves dance and dancers. Casting has yet to be announced, so start your dream casting now. And fun fact, 30 years ago, the film became the first animated feature to earn an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. Uh, that was, of course, before the Academy established the award for Best Animated Feature, which happened in 2002. Not so fun fact, there's still no Oscar for Best Choreography, as we will continue to take every opportunity to remind everyone. Boo. <laughs> um, the dance world has lost Bruno Poppin' Taco Falcon, a street dancing pioneer and star of the popular 1984 film Break-In, who also danced in Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal video. He passed away at age 58. We also bid farewell to Marina Keat, a dancer, choreographer, dance historian, and teacher with a lifelong dedication to the folk culture of Spain. In 1989, she became a dame of the Order of Queen Isabel of Spain for her efforts toward the preservation of Spanish culture. She was 87. So... 
thus concludes our big headline rundown. But as always, if you're looking for the most current news, please be sure to take a look at our Dance Media Events calendar, which has fully updated listings for lots of performances and events, including some things that we just don't get to here on the podcast. So to make sure you're not missing out on any upcoming shows or auditions, or to add your own events to the calendar, because you can do that too, head to dancemediacalendar.com. Okay, moving now into our longer discussion segment. We'd like to talk about an essay that recently ran in Dance Magazine by dancer Sasha Marlin Libret. And in the piece, Marlin Libret, who just graduated from Scripps College, describes her harrowing experience with long COVID, which she was diagnosed with several months ago. We're at this point where a lot of the world seems to have just moved on from COVID. Restrictions have been lifted pretty much everywhere in the United States. But we're entering yet another wave of infections, and it's important to be reminded that nobody is, I mean, no bodies are invulnerable. Um, Even young dancers in great physical health can be and have been devastated by this disease. And Marlon Labrette's essay also reveals the way that our country's culture and dance culture is very much included here is often just crushingly indifferent to the needs of the chronically ill and the disabled, especially if their illness or disability is invisible, as long COVID often is. It's such an important topic. And to just sort of give a recap of her story, after her junior year of college, uh, Marlon Labrette spent the summer in bed working on philosophy research and dancing. Uh, but at the end of July of last year, she tested positive for COVID. Um, she thought her vaccine would prevent serious illness, uh, but she lost her sense of smell. She became you know, deeply lonely in quarantine. And she eventually experienced difficulty breathing. And at one point, she even needed an oxygen tank. She became chronically fatigued and she experienced um, abnormality in her sense of smell. Um, Everything kind of smelled rotten to her. And she had to begin always asking for accommodations and defending her need for them. And she found that people aren't always uh, or weren't always understanding of indivisible illnesses. Some friends of hers were supportive, but in all, uh, her experience with long COVID made her more aware of the way society treats disabled and chronically ill people. They're often regarded as a burden. And when it comes to COVID, um, there are a lot of able-bodied people who have the mindset of, you know, let's let the disabled community stay home while we continue to go out and live our normal lives, which is such a narrow and flawed perspective to have. And also, as most COVID restrictions have been discontinued um, in New York City and in a lot of other regions, this problem will only continue uh, as time goes on. But Marlon Labrette um, has also become more aware of the gifts that her experience has brought her. She said that it's uh, helped her to gain strength and patience and resilience, self-compassion, um, sureness in her own abilities, even when she couldn't use them yet. So um, so frequently, disabled people's perspectives are ignored or undervalued when really they're essential. Yeah. You know, the fact that a significant chunk of the population is dealing with or has dealt with the effects of long COVID, I hope that ends up breeding greater compassion generally, that it helps us shed that terrible idea that those who are ill or disabled mean less because they contribute, heavy quotation marks, less. 
Um, And instead, as Sasha says in her essay, that we end up not just accommodating them, but also learning from them, because most of us will be ill at some point, all of us are going to die, and all of us live in perpetually vulnerable bodies. And in some ways, dancers are especially well equipped to understand those ideas to, to understand that type of compassion, since we live so fully in our bodies. So compassion and self-compassion, as she says, I hope those are sort of the silver linings here. Um, The other thing is, and I'm really guilty of this, we talk a lot about dancers as superheroes. Um, Mm. This idea that they're expected to do and they do do these incredible physical things, but nobody is invincible. Nobody should be thought of as invincible and nobody should be conditioned to think of themselves as invincible, which a lot of young dancers especially are. Um, that's another thing that I hope we end up sort of taking away from the pandemic and from COVID stories like this one, just to remember that dancer bodies need and deserve care and protection. Agreed. And it can be frightening to think of your own vulnerability and to imagine a reality where you can't use your body the way that you're used to, especially when you've had that idea kind of you know, drilled into your mind for so much of your life that you are what you are physically capable of doing um, and that you must be able to do more than the average person at all times or something Mm -hmm. is, you know, wrong with you in some way. I mean, I think in our culture in general, just in this country, there's that, like, I don't know that we, a lot of us never really kind of shed that idea that health is somehow connected to morality Um, Mm -hmm. and that also surfaces in the dance world, you know, when you get sick or injured or something, you know, goes wrong, I guess, or something that you didn't expect, I should say, happens with your body. Sometimes there's that feeling or sometimes you're even, you know, outright questioned, you know, oh, did you, you know, what did you do? Or you can feel guilty or you can feel like I must be a bad dancer or something like that. Um, those things are very real. Those are very real concerns. And if we can move past that. Yeah, not not have that that kind of I, mean, I feel like toxic is such an overused word, but that, you know, really harmful mentality, I think that can just be so much better, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. word. Yeah, yeah. Hard retweet. Um, anyway, obviously, we hope you can read Marlene Labrette's whole essay, which is beautiful and very moving and full of insight about what it means to mourn a past version of yourself. Um, We have it linked for you in the show notes. All right, that's it for us this week. Thanks everyone for joining. We'll be back in two weeks for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. See you next time, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.